My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds and keep covering up the sun. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, I'm very honored and delighted to be joined by Jason Bone. Hi, Jason. Hey, hi, Susie. I'm so thrilled that you're here. Jason and I met a few months ago. Um, a mutual acquaintance friend introduced us because Jason and his wife, Corey, and Corey, you heard from her in season three, they have a really awesome and unique I would say approach to um, anxiety. They have the Anxiety Center at Renew Counseling. And we're going to talk a lot about anxiety today because Jason is an adolescent anxiety expert. And yep. we're thrilled to have you here. Well, thank you very much. I enjoy, I don't enjoy talking about how much adolescent anxiety is out there, but I do enjoy getting tools in people's hands. And that's the thing that I want to start off with really is talk about the statistics. And, you know, I'm not asking mm -hmm. you about research, but the statistics, depending on what you read, anxiety in all people, but particularly adolescents, is just through the roof. Yeah, somewhere, I think it's a low estimate now, but 30% of all adolescents at some point between that 12 and 18 span is going to have what would be diagnosable anxiety in some wow. way, shape, or form. 30%. And I just read something about college students, and that's a little older than the, the group that you work with, but your wife, Corey, works with adults, right, 18 mm -hmm. and over. College students, there's like two-thirds of college students who have potentially diagnosable anxiety. Mm -hmm. So what's going on? What's causing all this anxiety? Yeah, I would um, I would argue that the world has gotten, and I'm going to use some kind of bigger language, but chaotic. You know, it is hard to understand the world, our structures that used to be in place and make sense, be that churches, be that schools, be that government. Uh, they're no longer pristine just accepted organizations. And so we don't have a societal structure or roles even. I mean, you know, 50 years ago, men knew what it meant to be a man and a, fa and a father and a family. I mean, whether we all agreed with it or not, there was a path for people to take. And right now we've, we've accepted that feelings are important. And so you have young people really diving into those feelings and having to keep safe places and not challenging themselves a lot. And so quite frankly, college is the first time they get hit with real personal responsibility along with all the academic responsibility, along with all the social responsibility. And I don't know that we've raised them to navigate those things mm. just yet. Um, and I, and I think they get there and they, and they don't know how to deal with it, so it, again, goes back to chaos, and they don't know how to navigate that path. Wow. That is 
that just kind of hits you right between the eyes in a way. Like, what are we as parents not doing to prepare our kids to launch? And let's go into your age group of, you mm-hmm. know, this is your kind of sweet spot of the adolescents. Yeah, I, you know, and we all, like, there's nothing really to blame here, except as a society, we are advancing very, very quickly. Technology is advancing. We're seeing chinks in armor all over the place. And quite frankly, we, there is no training ground for me to raise my own kids. I've got four kids Mm. at home, you know, and I mean, there's nothing to prepare me for the world that they are seeing right now, that they have, anytime they turn on Netflix, they have 300 choices versus the three I had when I was a child, you know, and I can't, I can't monitor all those. And so you're, as parents, you got to figure out how to navigate it yourself. And to some extent, you've navigated and you don't see it as big of a problem or as just this wide open space and you've you have found patterns and i don't know you you've made it there's a lot of adults struggling with anxiety also mm-hmm. i mean the world is chaotic at this mm-hmm. point but young people haven't even had that advantage of their brain being fully developed which takes at least until 25 and some other things and so we're asking them to dive into uh, stuff we don't understand. We don't how exactly how to walk them through it, and we don't even have a way to think about it. Mm. Um, and so I don't want to throw any parents under the bus. I, I work just as almost as hard with my parents as I do the young people because they need to learn both how to raise the particular child that's struggling and and what that might take right now, but also the other kids they have in their homes and that kind of thing. Let's talk a little bit about what your training and background is. Mm-hmm. And then we'll move into why you decided to start this intensive outpatient program specifically geared toward adolescent anxiety. Yeah, if I may, I have an interesting, my, apparently when I was like three, just to go back all the way to the beginning, I would run from one end of my house and run into a wall. And then I would turn around and run the other way until I ran into a wall. I have literally as a parent, I have no idea how many times I'd have to see that in my kid before I took him to a doctor. (laughs) But my parents took me to a doctor and the doctor's like, he's probably got ADHD, you know, and they tried Ritalin and Ritalin. I made me docile and compliant. And my mom's like, this is not my energetic creative young man that I had, is there anything else we can do? And, you know, 1973, 74, doctors weren't pushing the meds as hard. And he's like, you know, he's going to have to be able to sit on a piano bench um, for 15 minutes to be successful in school. Like, just be able to sit there without doing a lot and being able to pay attention, that kind of thing. And so... Apparently the next year, my parents' life was miserable. They physically had to hold me for a while to get me to stop moving and running around. Um, And I was truly looking for, I mean, stimulus enough to slow my brain down so I could think. That's Mm -hmm. one of the challenges of ADHD. Mm -hmm. They made it so I could use my gifts and graces when I got into school. And... But I still ADHD. I mean, I shook tables. I did everything. I'm I'm a squirrel kind of guy. Um, And it makes me... And you get to be a professional, it means I'm working on this and this and this and this. And, you know, sometimes it frustrates your wife. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But that just developed and it also developed along with I just love working with young people. Mm. So by the time I hit college, I was doing uh, I I jumped into um, uh, youth ministry. 
So I was doing youth ministry with adolescents and very, very practical. Like I, I want them to move. I want them to, and I spent, you know, there's a theory out there. If you spend 10,000 hours doing something, you might know a little something, something about it. Right. I've, I've spent my 10,000 hours in a room or on a bus or on a mission project with teenagers. Um, and that, turned into like, what do I do with this professionally? And I got my master's in clinical psychology um, and worked. My my first job was doing intensive in-home wraparound services for young people, mainly in the child welfare system. So we were trying to keep families together. We were dealing with crises. I had crises every, probably every day. I was wearing a pager. Um, but a really, an, an excellent supervisor who allowed me to try some things. And I got to play, and this actually helped this family and the significant needs we were seeing. Mm-hmm. And so it really set this foundation of, like, you've got to keep working through struggles. You know, you don't fire a family because it's hard, these kind of things. Um, you know, moving forward, I ended up going into uh, the federal government and working in child welfare. And so I started seeing, because I'm trained in family systems, but that actually applies to the whole country. And I ran programs trying to get fathers into the child welfare system. Everything in my career hit somewhere along child and family pathways. Uh, ended up moving back to Kansas City and worked my way into doing homelessness work on the metro level. So got to kind of know the whole metro and school districts and how they were dealing with young people that were struggling. Had worked, had had become an executive in a nonprofit. And at that point, they didn't make a profit. Mm. And my department got cut. Oof. And simultaneously, that same kind of year, two years, Corey, my wife, had started the intensive outpatient program for adults dealing with anxiety and she would go talk about it all over town and everybody be like well what do you guys do with adolescents and she's like that's not my area of expertise or what I want to do but I always heard this I was involved in the background and so was feeling this calling being led back to working directly with adolescents and their families and so don't have a job my wife was okay kind of felt at peace that that God was saying this was a good idea, and we built, started building this program five years ago. So September 10th, we will celebrate our fifth anniversary and move into our sixth year. Wow. That's incredible, and, and what a variety of experiences you have that have definitely helped shape and mold you and become an expert in teenagers. You said the 10,000-hour thing. I'm picturing you <laughs> 10,000 hours on a church bus going you know, to some hot, non-air-conditioned mm-hmm. camp in the middle of July. Yep. So I think you, you've earned your badge there. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that that would not be something that I would be wanting to do. But thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Let's dive in to some of the specifics about your IOP. So mm-hmm. you were kind enough to give me one of your... Uh, binders and to kind of dig through the materials that the the kids and the families actually work through. Mm-hmm. I wrote down some notes. I, I mean, I started marking this this notebook with sticky notes, and I finally stopped because I was like, I'm going to run out of sticky notes. There's so many good things in here that I want to talk about. One of your tenants 
is the bold living process. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about that. Can you explain to our listeners what that is? Sure. Bold is a, a simple acronym. Comes out of acceptance commitment therapy, which is an, a, an evidence-based practice. Has you know decades of evidence behind it. But it's a way to think about how to make wise mind or really healthy decisions. And it's breathe deeply and slow down. All right. Mm. So that's the B. And why do we breathe deeply and slow down? It's so that we can observe our thoughts and feelings and not just react to the world. Because ADHD, if you're doing emotion regulations, if you're struggling with anxiety and depression, you just you just react. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not planfully. And so the breathing deeply and slowing down is is step one. All right. And then you start observing um, what you're thinking. You know, am I beating myself up in my head? You start observing my feelings. Is my gut hurt? You know, am I am I angry right now and trying to cover it up or am I hungry? We teach a, a skill called halt, which is, you know, hungry, angry, lonely and tired. You know, those things all influence how we're going to make decisions and 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 navigate the world kind of thing. So you observe those and you once you understand them, then the L is listen to your values. And listening to your values means you have to know what matters to you. You have to have thought about and say, I want to move in this direction. And so even though some of my negative thinking, uh, we use this advisor concept, like I'm getting this voice in my head that's saying, um, guess what? You're not good enough to try out for that play. Like you shouldn't even do it. It'll be uncomfortable, those kind of things. Well, breathe deeply, slow down. Observe that you're having those thoughts and then listen to your value. It's like, I want to try new things. I want to see if theater or sports or D&D &D or whatever are, are actually bringing vitality to my life. And so then once you've listened to your values, you're like, okay, I'm not going to follow these thoughts and reactionary things. I'm going to listen to my value and then I'm going to decide on action and, and, and act and actually do what my values say. And it's a process because... We teach at least 10 breathe and slow down skills so and make them practice it. But there's, you know, we give op, we give access to like 30 and then there's another, you know, hundreds. There, you know, that's mindfulness. It's finding a way to be mindful. And so, but it's a process because you got to find the one that works for you. Right. I can't say this is, this is the breathing skill that's going to be perfect for your life mm -hmm. or the situations you might be in. Mm -hmm. And it's also a process because there are, you know, we teach at least 10 different ways to observe your thoughts and 10 different ways to observe your feelings and learn about that. And again, you've got to figure out which are the ways that help you move forward. Mm -hmm. And there's even tools and skills in there um, to, to think about your values, even when you don't have one immediately. So like pros and cons is I'm in a situation. I don't know how to make a decision here. Well, I can do the pros and cons. I don't really know what matters to me, but here are the pros to doing this right now. And here are the cons, both short and long term. At that point, you got a pretty good idea of what you and who you as a person think about this situation. Then you decide and you act. And so there's just, um, it's a process because you can change and adapt a process, and it doesn't mean you're a failure or not a failure. You just do it differently the next time if it didn't work. It's a skill set that you're teaching. Yes. These kids and even their parents, right? right? I use the bold process in, in dealing with – on a good day. <laughs> Let's I, say that. On a good day, I use the bold process to help with my own decisions with my own kids. Well, when I read it, I was like, why don't we all do this? Because mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense, and I'm not sure that I have really ever – 
done what you've said, you know, thinking through things that way. And, you know, I'm 53 years old, so maybe I ought to come enroll in your program because I think I could learn a lot and I think everybody could. Let's talk about the parent piece and the parent mm -hmm. involvement. And I feel like that's a unique um, part of your intensive outpatient program. I'm not an expert by any stretch. I'm just a mom. My experience with an intensive outpatient program with my son, Will, was that we dropped him off. We, I think we went in maybe the first time for an intake, and that was it. Talk a little bit about why you bring in the parents and what that looks like. Yeah, and so as a clinician, you're supposed to have theoretical um, foundations to how you think about the world and how you do treatment and that kind of thing. Mine are family systems, that every member of the family is important to the to a family being a healthy family, and my other is behavioral. So that's where the practical tools come into place. That yes, if we actually change our behaviors, we will change our thoughts, we will move forward. And so with the family systems piece, it's like, you know, a kid is not supposed to be able to fix themselves. It's mm. really even or anti, it's against what I believe is good for a young person. Um, and so, and that is the environment that they're going to go back in. So no matter how safe my room is, how no matter how validating my team is for this young person, after five weeks, they're back. They don't get that every day. And they're back with their same family unit and their friends and those kind of things. And so at that point, I want parents to like think through, okay, here are some really large paradigm shifting things around anxiety and depression and how do we help the family talk about those so in the midst of challenging things how do we teach them to have meaningful conversations around struggles which is i mean half the battle right <laughs> like sure. if a young person will actually share they're struggling on a day they're struggling then a parent can do something but it also helps the parent recognize oh okay so some of the things i might have been doing they might be just fine for maybe an average or some young people, but this young person needs me to do it this way. Uh, it also shows, I think to some extent, we have, we don't have to sacrifice much for our young people anymore. Mm. We've got resources, especially, you know, in, in where we live in this area. And, and we can just, we can pay somebody to, to clean our house or we can do, we're not sacrificing for our children the way my parents sacrificed for us. And whether that's necessary or not, I don't know, but it clearly showed me they loved me. Mm -hmm. All right. And so we've gotten to this place where we're all a little bit detached and technology is kind of in between us. And we're not showing in meaningful ways to young people that we love them. And they keep telling us, I mean, at this point on a national level, that they're important. You know, they're important because they're cutting. You know, mm -hmm. they think they're important because they're thinking about suicide. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're anxious because they know they're important and they don't know how to get that recognized in the environment around them. Mm. So at the end of the day, that's I, I believe parents need to know some just general, like solid information. I think they need to have some tools that they can be using because it's not easy. It's not easy to parent any kid, much less one that's struggling. And so giving them something, oh, I could do this. This is, you know, I didn't have anything before or I was doing something that might not have been helpful. Here, I can do this. And, and I'm pretty... I feel very confident in those areas that they'll be doing something that will be more productive for their family. 
you brought me a gift, which mm-hmm. is so nice. And they are a stack of values cards, sort, and then conversation cards. Tell our audience a little bit about what those are and how they come into play with um, the IOP. So I want to go back to you. It asked why I think there is anxiety yes. at the scale we're seeing in the beginning. And it's because we don't have ways to navigate the chaos and, and the unknown that's around us so much. I, I believe, and the research backs it up, that having things that are meaningful to you, which is the definition of values, is a path you can walk. Because, again, there is no perfect path. If nothing, our, hist- our current age says there are tons of paths to move forward in life. But if I can't even pick one, I'm, I'm stuck. Why do I pick one? You know, in my case, I picked children and families. And knowing I was going to have to show up and work with young people on a Sunday morning helped manage my Saturday evenings. I still had a lot of fun, but I didn't, you know, I didn't go out and—, and and just lose it so I couldn't be productive the next day. And so my values help me make meaningful decisions, all right? And so I think that's what's missing. And I can't, I can't give you values. I can't give any of these young people values. I can't just say, well, if you liked, you know, if you thought horseback riding was important, that would be fine. Your life would be good, all right? They have to find that passion, that spark. We do some work on sparks, but it's, it's how do you find those things that matter to you? And then as a family or parents, how do you talk about meaningful things to help strengthen that valuer in your young person? We know that adolescence is a time they they literally developmentally have to develop their own values all right they usually have to do that within the values of your family and your household and when those are conflictual or unknown it's a it's an even rougher situation that doesn't necessarily involve anxiety or depression mm-hmm. but if you throw that in there it's even worse on the other hand if we can help you in the tools so the conversation cards are designed like here's a question that doesn't have a right answer what makes a good life, all right? If we're having a conversation just like this about what makes a good life, you as a teen might legitimately tell me, man, if you fed me and I could stay in the basement and play video games for the rest of my life, it would be great. That would be a great life. But it's a conversation, so you now get to share, or I get to share what a meaningful or what a good life is to me. A lot of families use those cards around the dinner table. Like, everybody in the family talks about it. They are straight, again, from uh, acceptance commitment therapy. Uh, And so they complement the other values and the value or domains to strengthen the value. So just having that conversation actually makes the young person think about it. And that strengthens them knowing what matters to them. And so that's the conversation cards to kind of start the conversation. And then the values card sort is, it's a list of 38 values. They're not perfect values, but they cover a lot of things. And you just have people, young people like concrete things in their hands. They can separate them into, uh, this doesn't matter at all, this matters a little bit, or this matters a lot to me right now. And so you get these, you get this stack of what really matters to them. And then they can start building ladders or making plans to move towards those values. Families can do the same. What are our family values? Do we want to espouse honesty or compassion or fun and humor, those kind of things? And and if they do, to, to take it back is I don't think families think about values in that way as much anymore. And then when they do have them and they will say there are things that are important to them, they aren't structuring actions or activities or their life towards those events. And it's just, it's hard, you know, but 
if you have a foul, you know, I personally, I grew up on Table Rock Lake. I love the outdoors. This suburban life is very, very hard on me. And I didn't want my young people or my, my kids growing up not knowing the outdoors. To be honest, it's hard to just throw them in the van and say we're going to the woods and walking around all day. On the other hand, I have the resources. I invested in a boat. We go spend a day, and they're happy, and we're outside, and they're experiencing that beauty and everything else. And so that's a concrete action our family has taken towards the value that that nature and outside and, and beauty is important. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'm thinking we ought to have these um, from birth <laughs> as parents. I mean, what valuable tools mm -hmm. these are. To start with, I mean, even toddlers, right? I mean, again, again, just to, for us as parents even, take the time to really think through and define what our values are, what we want our values to be for our families, and the actions. The actions is important. It's huge. And, you know, so, yeah, I, I get asked because there's so few people talking about anxiety and depression to even talk to elementaries, mm -hmm. elementary parents. And so the last time I did that, I gave them all those value, the conversation cards. I'm like, you can start with your kid in third grade talking about things that matter to you guys, having them think about that, because if this matters to me, I have a way to navigate my life. I am moving towards that, and it gives me some resolve to get through the anxiety, the depression, or the struggles that are between anything, between you and anything that's good. Well, that's a good that you said that because that was my next question is how does that relate to anxiety, depression, et cetera, forming these values, talking about mm -hmm. them, acting, making actions towards those values? Yeah, and so anxiety and depression both lead into this avoidance cycle, all right? And, and even seen it with my own daughter in that, okay, it's uncomfortable to, be, to do this event. And so even though they're not flat out avoiding it, they're asking to not have to do it. You know, they don't, they feel a little sick to their stomachs. And so, but it turns into them understanding this strategy of avoidance. Like that's a way to feel okay right now in this moment. All right. And, and then obviously that didn't matter enough to them. On the other hand, you think about, I really want to play football, right? I, I value the teamwork, the experience, the fun, the comp competition. But you know what that means? That actually means I have to go to four practices a week. Mm -hmm. I have to lift weights. I actually have to hurt every single day. And so moving towards something matter that matters enough to me allows me to go through those struggles. And the same with anxiety. You see, and especially young men, they just don't have anything that matters to them. They just look like lumps in their bed, or maybe they're playing video games because it's so... It, it is so interactive and distracting and everything else that they, that's still something that catches their attention. But for the most part, they just give up on other stuff. You know, it's not like they're pouring energy into anger or mad and frustrated with their friends and or not wanting to do social life. They just they just kind of suck it in and it turns into no motivation, you know, and and why try? Because mm. nothing matters. Mm -hmm. And so at those points you've got to help that young person find something that matters to them. I think that's where the values and the and the car conversation cards come into play mm -hmm. and and then you can start building very small steps towards getting to what matters to you.
what if the answer is the only thing that matters to me are the video games? Because I'm guessing that that is an answer that's given. Yeah, and and if that's true, it would you know, and you're you're develop, delving into a little more maybe individual therapy kind of thing. But it would be like, well, what apart, what about this? Do you love? It's is it the is it the connection with your friends that you're playing online with, and the conversations and and the fun there? Is it the like these graphics are cool and the story engages me and if, if it's the story or if it's the, the process of winning battle, well, okay, how can we then shift that into another area? Where could you try? Can you tell a story somewhere else? Can you, maybe you want to program this and see how it works so you can get behind it. You, you just go, it's a general principle that's really hard, but you go to the very smallest step that somebody can handle. That's exposure therapy. If I'm scared of something, I go to the very smallest step that I can handle the uncomfortableness. And I'm not actually getting rid of the anxiety. I am becoming braver and stronger, able to handle that thing that scares me. But in this case, it's taking what's the smallest step towards something that might matter to me. And and if I feel like it matters to me, I might try again bazillion questions in my head (laughs) so i'm going to try to um ask as many as i can in a reasonable amount of time you mentioned individual therapy versus the intensive outpatient program how is a parent to know which is right for their kid or are both at some times right for a child yes I, I think if you have somebody that's struggling, my first recommendation is always going to be family therapy. If you can find someone, just not to assume that there's problems, but that we need to find the answer together. But if you think they just need um, an outlet to talk about, I have families call me and they tell me their problems. And I'm like, yeah, I could get you into my program, but I'm intensive for a reason. I interfere with school. I interfere with family life. I am asking, because the problem is big enough, I am asking you to do the work it takes to deal with that chunk of problem. I I regularly tell families, go find an individual therapist, um, work with them. You need to, you you should have some expectations of that therapist, that they're going to be in somewhat communication with you, that they're going to work on having a rapport, that they have an experience of working with an adolescent. Um, and then you need to be, you need to have expectations that there will be change. Like is change happening? And it, you know, it may be three or four weeks. And if they can't explain why change isn't happening, if they can't explain it, it might make sense. I have worked with young people where I have told the families they are so stuck. It's going to take me a couple months to get through this before you're going to see anything. On the other hand, if they're not, you should see change. You know, you should see some response in three or four sessions and in a couple months. And if you're not, you need to know the reason why. Um, on the other hand, it is also hard to find an adolescent therapist. And it's it's hard to find one that's actually good at whatever you happen to be dealing with. And in some of those cases, we are the best answer, you know, because A, our, we'll take your insurance. Mm. And most individual therapists won't. Absolutely. And um, And we can get you in. You know, (laughs) we can get you in before three months or or something like that. And we can give you good recommendations, that kind of thing. You don't have a waiting list then? Is that what you're telling me? Um, What I I have, I personally have worked on developing a team that can flex. And so in, so last November we get enough 
extra eligibility forms that we'd have had to put them on a wait list for a couple months. And I say, let's start another session. Mm -hmm. So we run two at the same time. So my average is somewhere for one group is 10 to 12. And that's a pretty effective group. We just double and we hit, you know, 20 to 24 at a time. And, and quite frankly, until the last month, we had essentially been doubled since November because the need is so high. And so I tend to just think I'm going to open more seats if I possibly can. And so this summer we're, we're running an AM session, you know, and that leaves us the flexibility to run two in the afternoon if we had to. Wow. We always run because the, the need is incredible. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, we don't let people wait very long. Um, we're also adding a weekly skills group that's not during school time this summer because I think there needs to be something between individual therapy and my intensive program. And there's not much. Okay. That's a nice little fill, you know, filling a gap, filling a need. Mm-hmm. You talked about insurance. That's always, mm-hmm. and payment, it's always there in terms of there is a large percentage of our population that either doesn't have insurance, has inadequate insurance, mm-hmm. doesn't have the means to self pay. Mm-hmm. What about those people? Let me step back a little bit because a, a lot of individual therapists won't get on panels, can't get on panels with insurance companies. The interesting thing is if you have insurance, you can still use your out-of-network benefits, all right? So it doesn't maybe pay you back as well, but it does get you some it, – it uses your insurance to your benefit, your ins- your. The, the therapist is still asking for the rate they think they're worth and probably are. And so that is a way to navigate that system and just think out of, of, of out-of-network benefits and ask for super bills and those kind of things. Um, and, and the reason it's hard to get on panels with insurance companies and, and they – they don't pay as well as you could get on your own. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't make sense for individual therapists to, to go out of their way too much. So the system is a little bit built against them. And one of the questions you would send is, how do we change? How do we fix this? That, mm-hmm. That's lobbying. That's some advocacy, you know, at, at insurance company levels and federal levels and those and, and even state levels because our own – you know, there are restrictions on how to become a therapist, and it's not an easy path, and it's – they – there are things that could be easier and they're not. So it still takes a while to get therapists out there. Going back to the others, you know, um, I don't have good, good answers for what people without insurance can do, except for what we do personally in our house at Renew. And, you know, and, and that is we, we bring on and we raise up a, a graduate interns all right, that can charge a lot less or be on a sliding scale, and we can be flexible in that way. We're also, in my case, raising people up or educating people or experiencing people to work with adolescents. So I'm actively working on getting more and more individual out counselors out there that, that understand adolescents. Corey and I give CEUs or, or continued education and trainings all the time to help bring, you know, get other people to be able to use what we know are effective tools. I think some of those are the big ones. I personally am now taking my program, my, the skills we teach, and they are based on ACT or DNAV, which is ACT for Adolescents, and, and DBT skills. So they have evidence-based behind them. But I'm putting them online. 
Um, so building a program online that somebody could do it themselves or a family could work together to go through them. I'm also taking that same thing and trying to build it into something schools could teach, say, an hour a week to a group of 10 or 12 young people at a at a just a small percentage of what it would cost to go through my program, you know, and so personally, I'm attacking that scale. Again, I've worked wow. at the federal government. I've worked in poverty and child welfare most of my career. I think in those terms, uh, I also have to feed my own family. So sure. I'm figuring out how to, how do I run a business and scale this? Yeah. And so we, I'm, um, I'm bringing in school counselors this summer who are invested to, how to navigate schools to get this program in there, how to make it most practical for them. Because the, the program's developed. I mean, we have the 20 lessons, we have the curriculum, those kind of things. And so figuring out how to navigate the schools and get them in and what would a meaningful process of getting a school community to use this bold language or mm-hmm. DNAV language. And we've even figured out some of that. Like I've spoke at a whole, every, every seventh and eighth grader in a middle school kind of thing. So they can all speak the language and the counselors. It's one of the things I like about DNAV is that it resonates with young people. They use that language moving forward. And that in itself is a huge step forward. DNAV, just for yep. the listeners, go ahead and define that acronym. Yeah, it stands for Discoverer, Noticer, Advisor, and Valuer. And Valuer is what we've talked about, mm-hmm. finding things that matter to you and moving towards them. The mm-hmm. advisor is that inner voice in our head that is 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 attached to our amygdala, so it's trying to keep us safe and comfortable, whether that's the best thing for us in the moment or not. The noticer is, can we notice our own internal sensations and emotions, and can I also notice outside of me how you're, re- how you're responding to me so then I can then be in better relationship with you kind of thing. And discoverer is, all right, there are things in my life that aren't working. How do I discover new ways to interact with the world that move me forward, that bring value, bring vitality to my life. And, you know, babies, um, this is a fun question to ask middle schoolers. Do you know of any babies that didn't want to learn to walk, that gave up? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, how old's that kid now? Five. Are they walking? Yes. They didn't give up. They mm-hmm. stopped for a little while. But if you think about a baby, it's all trial and error. Mm. And if you could think about it with our adult voice, every time they fall down, it's a failure. Mm. And how hard is it to get back up from a failure for something that's really hard to do? The value of independence is so important in that baby. They're willing to go through that trial and error, that regular failure process. Wow. But by the time you're a teen, who wants to fail? Nobody wants to fail. We sure don't want the embarrassment of failing in public. You know, I mean, there's just lots of reasons why that's hard. So discover is a process of how can I try something new? How can I test it out? How can I track whether that's bringing vitality and think about it? Maybe a little more carefully than just trying just randomly or embarrassingly or those kind of things. That is such a great analogy that I not I have never thought of as the baby walking. And you're mm-hmm. right. Nobody wants to fail. We get to, you know, even middle or uh, elementary school and we don't want to fail. Mm-hmm. But yet we're kind of born made to fail, I guess, in a way. That's how we learn. Yeah. We learn. Well, I mean, sure. A, an interesting analogy about how we learn is trying to explain to somebody else 
in words how to ride a bike and see mm. how effective you yeah. are, right? <laughs> and can they actually learn that by mm. just hearing words? No, they can't. Mm -hmm. You physically have to get on a bike. You have to have the body sensations, the other things. To actually learn to ride a bike, you've got to take actions. You have to behave in the world. So that is... Part of one of the things we lose is somehow we think we can do it intellectually or mm -hmm. we think we can do it vicariously, that somehow watching a thousand hours of YouTube is teaching me how to be a better person, you know, or whatever, <laughs> whatever the case may be. Or that watching TikTok makes me a dancer. Yeah. It does not. I am not a dancer because of TikTok. <laughs> but a lot of people think they are. Yeah. What is, I'm going to move on into yeah. um, some kind of more deep um um, maybe deep sounds the right word. I'm going to move into some questions just about mental health and mental illness in general. Mm -hmm. Because you are an expert in anxiety, <laughs> what is the relationship between anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, self-harm, eating disorders, all of the above, anything I didn't list? So I come from a place where there's a biological component to almost everything. So some of our genetics, those kind of things. But we also know that interaction with the environment is very important and can can change our 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 biology, our the way we interact with the world, how our hormones, everything works. And so, how are those things connected in um, in the sense that almost every thing somebody does is adaptive to the world. They are trying to control. So when you go back to my language of there's, it's chaotic, I don't understand this world, and quite frankly, it's generating a lot of internal pain. What can I control? I can tr control how much food goes into my body. I can control how hard I exercise. I can legitimately control that I'm not going to do that thing. You know, so anxiety, I'm just going to avoid it. All right? And so... I see, in, unless there are really strong biology components, because there are for schizophrenia and bipolar and some other things, but that they are adaptive strategies that people have learned. They worked in some way, shape, or form, and now we've gone to the extremes because we're trying to control, trying to control our emotions, so we're shoving them down. We're trying to control... Um, our, our interactions with others, so we're either completely writing them off or we're lashing out. I think a lot of it has to do with how are we going to control the world. And mm -hmm. so if you're depressed, you, you've already entered that avoidance, I'm not doing much, and it actually just compounds itself. Um, and so it's easier you know, to lay in bed and watch TV and not feel worse and worse about yourself than it is to go fail or to try and, and not have it be meaningful kind of thing. And so I, I think of a lot of them as control. I think they also, especially in young people, before cognitive development is fully there, is that any failure turns into negative thinking. And negative thinking reinforces itself. And by the time you get to, so again, the advisor concept, most of the young people I deal with have what I call as a self-abusing advisor. Mm. They are beating up on themselves so much that it is, it is filtering the world around them. Every interaction, they see much more of the negativity of it than anything positive. All right, so trying to give them a compliment, they're like, I'm stupid, it's embarrassing kind of thing. Or um, you're not good enough. And, and just repeat it over and over, well, I'm not good enough anywhere. And I start finding um, 
I start finding things that prove that to myself, mm. you know? And so then you're reinforcing. And so maybe you're starting with what was, you know, a trauma or a biological predisposition and you're, you're magnifying the situation. Um, you just, it's just getting worse and worse and worse because you're trying to control the world because you don't want to be in pain, right. you know, and if you're beating yourself up and I don't want to be in pain, well, eventually it narrows your options. Like I can't think of 10 different ways to solve this case. The only thing I can think of, cause I'm in so much pain is to cut. All right. And, oh, I'm not in pain anymore. I'm in a different kind of pain, mm -hmm. but it feels otherworldly at times mm -hmm. or, that situation was so bad because adolescents, they go to the extremes, was so bad the only option I can think of is giving up completely. So giving yeah. up their life, suicide, the world. And sometimes they think they're feeling, they're bringing so much pain on the people around them and they're such mm -hmm. a struggle that, you know, my being dead would actually, you know, benefit other people. They wouldn't have to deal with my struggles either. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really important point to make and We've talked about this on the Just a Mom podcast in previous episodes, but if a parent thinks or a friend thinks or you know, a human being has any indication from another person that that might be a thought that that person's entertaining, we need to ask, hey, Jason, I, I sense that you're struggling. Are you thinking about potentially taking your own life? Mm -hmm. We're not going to put ideas in people's heads. Mm -hmm. We're actually going to open the door to say, I care enough about you to ask. Yeah, I would add to that that there are some outside indicators that should give you some yellow and red flags to know, especially in adolescence. So I had the opportunity to talk with the, the social work team at Children's Mercy a couple years back. And at the time, they were doing 1,800 adolescent suicide screenings a year. And they they got to a point where they are like, I asked them, like, well, well, what indicates this? And they gave me a list of five things that they thought 90 to 95% of the young people they saw would have fit into these five categories. So the, the young people does not do not feel meaningful connections to family or friends, and so there's a lack of connections. They, they do have an anxiety, a depression, or an eating disorder. So those disorders lead to suicidal ideation on their own. They're struggling with their gender and sexuality you know, identity in some form or fashion. Um, there is significant family conflict. And, you know, I just, again, I've, I've spoken to 1,200 middle schoolers in the last month and a half, and I'm like, if you have a friend whose parents are going through a divorce right now, that is a family with significant conflict. And that will lead to your friend. It may not lead to suicide. It may not change them in the direction of a disorder. But they are that's a yellow flag. Yeah. You need to be aware that that's family conflict. Sure. And then the fifth one was existential or purpose of life kind of questions, which is literally a developmental stage of adolescence. You're supposed to try and figure out what's your purpose in life. Why are we here? And then I go back to my beginning statements of like, we don't have a clear path to get there. We don't know what we're moving forward. And, and so it doesn't make any sense to do algebra when I don't know what I'm, what's the point of it. And so if a young person has, like if I know they are dealing with any one of those five things, that's a yellow flag and I'm going to pay attention and I'm going to ask some questions. If I find out they're dealing with two or more of those five things, I just assume 
that they have the thought the world would be better off with me or I could end this pain um, by not being alive. Mm. And, and it doesn't mean, and I, I would say in the majority of cases, it doesn't actually mean they're planning or they're intending. It's just become an option. And if things keep going down that path and they see less and less other positive options, it becomes a bigger and bigger option. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm. I, I really think that's a valuable tool for parents and friends is those, those five things. I will make sure in the show notes and list those out. What would you say to the young parent because I really want young parents to be listening to the Just a Mom podcast. Mm-hmm. I always say, I wish I could go back mm-hmm. almost 26 years now before I became a parent and hear all the things that I've heard mm-hmm. over the last year or so um, that people have shared with me on, on the Just a Mom podcast. What would you tell young parents on how to utilize some of these things that we've talked about today on a scale that is workable for babies, toddlers, early elementary age kids? I I would tell them, first off, most of our young parents are where they're at in an environment where their parents didn't know how to raise them. And so they, they have the same questions. They have the same concerns about structure and everything else that our adolescents have. Um, and that they need to clarify their own values. They need to figure out some things that matter to them. And it can't be a list of 20 things. Mm-hmm. They, need, they need to have, these are some of the things I want to be said at my you know, gravestone kind of things. And then pick two or three of them and say, you know what, we're going to take actions. We're going to build this into our life. And so for their own lives, are they acting on values and navigating the world using these things that matter to them? And it, I... I, I'm not going to even say, and I, I have a faith-based background, that it has to be anything. I mean, it can be almost anything. I love hiking so much that that's an influencing factor in my life and in my family. And so then planning actions and, and structuring their life and demonstrating that to their children from early on and then helping their young people find those things that are meaningful. So pay attention. My kid lit up when they did this. And so I'll take that to example. My, we started at nine um, with Taekwondo with my, you know, with my nine. She was nine years old at the time. And, and here, another parenting tip with that. I was going to give her the choice. We were going to give her the choice to continue it or not. But then she did something sneaky, you know, wanted to get on her tablet when she wasn't supposed to. Kind of, and we like, you're getting a black belt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. we are making a commitment for you to something we think develops character and practice and all of these resolve things that it takes to go through hard stuff in life. And so what's funny is to watch, she lights up in the presence of the teachers and everything else. But if you ask her outside of that room or when we're getting ready to go, she leans towards, I'd rather not, you know, mm. it's uncomfortable. It's not fun. I have to remember how much I see her lit up doing that so that I keep pushing that. And I don't let any avoidance structures come into play. And so I talked with some parents the other day, and they're like, well, our daughter wants to step out of competitive soccer. I don't have anything pro or against competitive soccer per se, but 
and that young person should have the empowerment to, like, this isn't the direction I want my life to go in, but it shouldn't be in the absence of moving in a different direction. Mm. Like, they should have something else that they're at least going to try and could argue that meets some of those values and things. And so I think having conversations like the conversation cards from young ages, you, you can get those in, in stores. You can get mm-hmm. question books and those kind of things. But having meaningful conversations with your young people um, – early on looking for those sparks. I think those are meaningful. I think the DNAV language itself is something that elementary kids can get and understand and think, oh, I'm noticing right now, or I should discover whether I like bugs or not. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so the language or what's that inner voice saying to you kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so uh, I think the DNAV language works at every age level that I've seen so far. You just Mm-hmm. You still have to talk to five-year-olds, and not everybody knows how to talk sure. to five-year-olds, but it, it can be done. Well, and I think, too, even back to my own parenting of, of those age kids, and my kids are all effectively adults now, but a lot of times I was more concerned with their behavior than you know what was going on on the inside. And I, at that time, would I have said that? I don't think I would have, but I think a lot of us as parents think that, oh, well, the behavior is the outward expression, and if they're not behaving, you know, then that represents us poorly or whatever. And that we fo- – I can't say that about anybody but myself, but that I focused too much of my attention on the outward behavior versus what you're talking about. And I would throw in also that they need to find ways to actually sacrifice for their kid, mm. even from a young, you know, like actually recognize you're giving up something and you're, why are you doing it? Because this kid matters. We're now seeing a trend of parents who even breastfeeding, sadly enough, are still on their phone, mm. a time that is supposed to be so responsive mm-hmm. in both directions between a mom and a baby and and they're on on their phone and it seems like a good idea you know you can use this time you're not doing anything in that but at some point you've got to recognize when is that doing damage and when is it not mm. and, and if anything is more important than your young person they're going to know it mm-hmm. they're, they're going to know it and you got to figure out how to how to navigate that you know that is such a interesting thing i wouldn't have never thought about that because we didn't have these things when I was yeah. nursing babies. We got all kinds of chatter about how our kids, our, our middle schoolers and our teenagers aren't getting social skills because of their phones. But your young parents were raised on that phone. It is attached. It is a, and, and it's a meaningful tool. I mean, don't get me sure. wrong, but it shouldn't be more important than the conversation in front of you. Right. Or, or the reactions. Right. Or the responsiveness to a baby. Mm. I mean, Baby, working with a baby is like a dance. Mm. You're responding, you're changing to them, they're changing to you. And you need to be engaged in that yeah, dance. Right. And boy, I can tell you that it goes by so fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, Jason, what have I not asked you that you want mm. to um, hit on or talk about? I think you've done a pretty thorough job. Um, I would just say that even if you feel stuck, there are resources out there. I mean, you can go find something, you know, there are meaningful books. Um, you, I, I'd also say you can change trajectory. You mm. know, we've adopted a couple of kids. We have not fully changed the trajectory of one of them, but we're closer. We're a lot closer. And with our own kids, we're setting up some structure for their lives for the summer that, 
meet our values right now. You know, they're not all old enough to have their own, and we're not going to let them just play Roblox for 10 hours a day. We want them to move forward in education. We want them to move in forward in spirituality. We want them to move forward in physical education and learn some new skills, those kind of things. And so we have, and you know, there's the benefit of resources, but my parents did it without resources, mm. took us to museums, took us to summer theater, those kind of things. It's finding those things and, and making sure they're added into your young person's life. Mm hmm and, and doing it with some structure and some commitment mm -hmm. and follow through. It doesn't have to be forever, but it's not like, oh, I don't like this, so we're leaving. <laughs> mm -hmm. Very good. Well, Jason, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with the Just a Mom podcast listeners. I think anyone could benefit from the information that you've shared. I will put your website in the show notes as well so that people can find you. And uh, I know you've got some resources on there as well mm -hmm. and, and some in-depth um, conversations about your your program. So thank you again mm -hmm. for being on this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. Well, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988 if you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.